0: You know, we uh pretty frequently just kinda of take God for granted. I mean God's power is seen so many different ways, so many different provisions in our life, this whole sustaining of the universe, all the miraculous that is continually involved in our world and our universe, and yet we just kinda of take God for granted. And yet there there are times in our life that we just we're captured by it. It's it's embedded in our head, in our mind, in our heart that we have seen the power of God and will not forget it. Perhaps it was during a time of illness or or maybe God God spared you a horrific accident and you came away with a few bruises when when it could have been your final minutes on earth. Or like on Mother's Day, perhaps you remember giving birth to your child and the celebration and just the awe that came with that and it's just one of those times you're like, I just remember seeing the power of God. Well, For those of you who have put your faith in Christ, do you remember when you first came to the realization, indeed, he is God. He is the Savior and he is risen. And I believe and I am forgiven and I am free. And these are times in our life that we have seen the power of God. But there's life is hard and difficult and there's a lot of times where we experience just the hardship and the difficulties and the pain and we're like, Man, is is, it, is life just a series of heartache followed by death? And how is God working in the midst of these these problems? And is he? I can tell you that I've I've asked those questions. I've certainly seen God's hand and his power displayed in some pretty magnificent ways in my life and my family's life. But then there's all these different occasions where you go through difficulty and hardship and pain and life doesn't make sense. And you're wondering... God, are you, are you working there as well? And I know that you've asked those same questions. Perhaps you're asking them even now. There's a chapter in the Bible that is meant to have its place in our life like it had the place in the life of Israel. That is to underscore the power and the providential goodness of God showing himself even through the midst of difficulty Tragedy, heartache, and just life not making sense. And that is Genesis chapter 41. And if you are looking to see how God's power is working in your circumstances, you're going to want to spend some good time in this chapter. And if you are a leader in any capacity, Genesis 41 needs to find a special place in your heart. You remember, as we've been studying the life of Joseph, that as a teenage boy, his dad set him up in the position of favoritism, kind of treated him like a prince, put on this fancy coat. He was spared from work. All the other boys had to go off and take care of the sheep and, and do all the field work. Joseph was treated as a prince. They hated him. His brothers did. And when they had the opportunity, they stripped him of his coat They threw him in a pit. They were going to kill him, but they decided they'd make some money off him instead. They sold him for 20 pieces of silver. And Joseph finds himself sold into slavery by his own brothers. And he is carried off in shackles, makes his way down to Egypt. There he, on a slave auction, he is bought off by the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard, a guy by the name of Potiphar. And the amazing thing about it is that even in the midst of the difficulty, the Lord was with him. In fact, in Genesis 39, four different times it says, The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. And God allowed him to prosper even in the midst of being a slave. So much so that Potiphar entrusted everything to him. And Joseph finds himself exercising great oversight over all of Potiphar's estate, all of his people, and representing him publicly. Well, all that came crashing down when Potiphar's wife, Mrs. Potiphar, took a special interest in Joseph. And not in the same way that her husband did. She tried to seduce him. And when she couldn't, with her sexual advances, get him to succumb to what she wanted, then she one time just grabbed him by the coat and he fled. And once again, the tearing away of a garment. And he's accused of rape. And Potiphar has no choice but to throw this man in prison. I believe that Potiphar didn't think he was really guilty of trying to rape his wife. Because if he did, he had killed him. That was what she did. Once you came to an ascertain, ascertain what exactly happened, the guy's guilty, you killed him. But he probably was more upset with his wife and her lying and her scheming. And so Joseph is sent off to prison. And there he is kind of languishing away for years. He's in prison. And then one day the, the doors open and two of Pharaoh's key men come in, the cupbearer and the head baker. And they're there. And because God was with Joseph, even in prison, and he wasn't wrapped up in self-centered bitterness, God allowed Joseph to prosper even in prison, so much so that the head prison guard said, I want you to take care of these people. And so when these boys walk in from Pharaoh's court, he takes care of them. And then one day they're completely downcast, and we saw this last week because they had this dream. They each had a separate dream, and they couldn't understand it, but it demanded interpretation. And Joseph, even though dreams had gotten him in trouble before, he said, tell it to me. And God will give you the interpretation. So he tells them, they both tell him the dream. The cupbearer tells him a dream. Joseph says, you know, your dream means that in three days, Pharaoh's going to restore you to your high position as advisor and the cupbearer, the one who brings the cup to Pharaoh's lips. On the other hand, for the head baker, life isn't going to turn out so well. And in three days, you're going to find out and you will die. And it happened exactly the way God had said. And Joseph was thinking, now is my time, I'm getting out. Finally, because I told the cupbearer, remember me, show me a loving kindness. And certainly after doing this, in the presence of Pharaoh, he would be able to get Joseph out. But if you look at 41, chapter 41, verse 1, now it happened at the end of full, two full years. After two years, the cupbearer completely forgets Joseph. And yet Joseph faithfully serves. Now, we find here in chapter 41 that at the end of two full years, Joseph has given up hope that the cupbearer is ever going to follow through on what he asked. At the end of two full years, Pharaoh had a dream. Now, Pharaoh is is like the emperor of Egypt. He is the great king. The word Pharaoh, it actually means it's the great house. And it didn't actually refer to the king himself. It referred to where he lived. But because he lived in such a palace, the ruler that lived in the palace was just referred to as Pharaoh. Pharaoh himself was considered a god. He was, he was considered to be the personification of the god Oris, part of the sun god cult. He was represented by a falcon. You can see that in all the Egyptian artwork. And he was worshipped as a god. In fact, Egypt had 2,000 gods. He was considered the personification of Oris. Now, we find that he is having a dream. Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile. The Nile River, 4,000 miles long. It is the lifeblood of Egypt. The the Nile River really was the, the chief geographical feature that allowed Egypt to become one of the dominant powers in the ancient world. Because what it would do, this 4,000 mile river, once a year it would flood and all the silt of the river would go upon the land and they would have rich soil and they would be able to plant crops. All of the population lived basically alongside the river. Everything about Egypt and its power was sourced in the river. And so Pharaoh's having a dream about the great river that he's standing standing by, the Nile. And it says, verse 2, that he, lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh. He's gone, oh, this is a good dream, you know, like some of our ranchers and farmers, you know, they love dreaming about their cows being big, fat, you know, standing by the river. Everything is great. And all of a sudden, this dream takes this really peculiar twist. Verse three, then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, and they were ugly and gaunt. And they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile, and the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Whoa, you know, wait a second here. Cows eat grass, they don't eat each other. Eat other you know, and he's like, <clears throat> and he's so startled and so uh, star, um, alarmed by this, what he's seeing, that he awakes. He's like, oh, I'm, having a, I'm having a bad dream. That's okay. I'm Pharaoh. That's all right. I'm a god, right? Okay, I'm going to go back to sleep. No problem there. So he falls asleep. Verse 5, and he fell asleep and he dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stock. Plump and good. Ah, finally a decent dream. And then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. And then Pharaoh woke, and behold, it was a dream. Now it was the morning, and his spirit was troubled. These were troubling dreams that he had. So he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is so alarmed. You think of it this way. If Pharaoh isn't happy, no one is happy. It's kind of like a saying that I've heard before, but I can't think of it on Mother's Day. But it's, it's like that. Because if Pharaoh's not happy, man, everybody's not happy. And he is alarmed. All of the magicians. And they had many. And the wise men. And they, what they would do is these magicians were very steeped in the occult. They had 2,000 gods. There was plenty of things to keep them very busy. They were really just wrapped up in a satanic religion that had gods coming everywhere. And really, if you look at Egypt in ancient Egypt, it was, it was a culture that was almost more about death than it was life. They were so focused on the afterlife. They were the ones, by the way, that perfected the art of embalming. Even today, we can go to different museums and you can still see the remnants and how effective they were at embalming. And the reason they were so good at it and why they perfected it is they believed that as long as the body existed, the soul would exist. You wonder, how could these bodies remain for thousands and thousands of years? It's because they had perfected the art of embalming. And they had wise men, and these guys were astute. For instance, they're the ones that developed the solar calendar with 365 and a quarter days. They came up with that. Whoa. They were smart. They developed medicines. They were sophisticated. They developed the art of warfare. They trained horses. They were the ones that really fully developed the use of chariots. They knew the art of war. And yet this culture is just trapped in all these superstitions. It's shackled by it. And Pharaoh's alarmed. And so he gets his wise guys and he gets his his magicians, his occult people, these spiritists. And he is. I want to know what these dreams mean because they are consuming me and bothering me. And so they're trying to come up with all their stuff. I don't know. They're bringing incense. They're writing things. They're, they, maybe they try to give a couple different interpretations, but it wasn't working. And Pharaoh wasn't happy. There, there's one guy in the court, though. I'm sure he's taking this all in. He's going, all right, boys, show up here. We're going to get this guy happy. But no one can come up with an answer of what these dreams mean. Well, that guy on the court, verse 9, the chief cupbearer. Well, he spoke to Pharaoh and he's saying, "Uh, I would make mention today of my own offenses, literally the word sins. Okay, Uh, I don't really want to bring this up, but do you remember one time, once upon a time, Pharaoh was furious with his servants. And he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker, who, he doesn't mention this, but he's the one you killed on your birthday, remember? And you hung him and paled him on a stake. You took his head off him. Yeah, I remember that. I don't really even want to bring this up, but I, I think this might help here. Verse 11, we had a dream on the same night. He and I, each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, uh, Hebrew youth, was with us there a servant of the captain of the bodyguard and we related them to him and he interpreted our dreams for us to each one he interpreted according to his own dream and just as he interpreted for us so it happened he restored me in my office but he hanged him so he tells them about this dream and, and there was a Hebrew youth and he told us exactly what our dreams meant and they happened exactly the way he said well, that's all that Pharaoh needs to hear. All of a sudden, things spring into action. Look at verse 14. Now, then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's like, there's a guy like that? Where? He's in my prison? Get him now. Okay? And so they do. There's all these verbs speak of action. All of a sudden, there, that clothing motif comes back up. They, they dress him. But before that, though, he, he shaves himself. Did you see that? That's pretty important because shaving in the Egyptian culture was huge. They, they despised hairy individuals, okay? So like the Canaanites that lived up in the north there, uh-uh, not going to work. you got hair everywhere on your face, on your head, not going to work. The Egyptians prided themselves in shaving their, not only their face, but they'd shave their hair. They shaved all the hair off their body. OK, so the first triathletes right there in Egypt, all right, right, they're just shaving all their hair. And but there, this is the kind of the unique thing, though. They would wear wigs, though, made of human hair. OK, so I don't get it. OK, wigs have been around for a long time, but they would shave all their head like I need some hair. I'm not looking very good here. And they'd get, they'd get a wig on, you know, and they put that on there. You know, if you I know some of you are trying to help me understand this sort of thing. I want you to think of our men's retreats and think of like John Schultz, okay? Alright, you know how he, his head's all shaved and he's looking so sleek and good and then he, and then he shows up at the retreat and he's got this, you know, he's sporting this wig, okay? That's kind of what it looked like only totally different out there in Egypt, alright? Alright, so, uh, back to Egypt, okay? This is a pretty serious situation here. He's looking good, right? Alright. Alright, so he, um, so what happens is Pharaoh's like, alright, get in. So Joseph, which he probably, when he was a slave and running everything for Potiphar, he probably, he's, he completely shaved down. But when he's in prison, he could no longer keep up appearances. So he shaves, he is, he is clothed, and he is then, he, he is brought to Pharaoh. And verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I hear that there's something special and unique about you. You got power. You got wisdom. You got insight. But I want you to see how Joseph responds. Joseph then answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. Me? I'm not I can't do that. Be thinking no man can do that. But he says, God, Elohim, the creator God, the preeminent, supreme God, not one of these hokey little gods of Egypt. Elohim. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer, an answer that will give you peace or at least resolution and understanding your dreams. This isn't about me. There is nothing about me that is special other than my God. Let me just tell you, life gives you all sorts of opportunities to bear testimony of the power of God. You got it in your jobs. People give you accolades about your kids, about something happening in your family, something you have been involved in accomplishing. Why don't you make sure you give credit where credit is due. Here's Joseph prison boy no problem let me tell you it's not about me it's all about god god will give pharaoh a favorable answer and so pharaoh spoke to joseph and in verse 17 all the way through 24 he recounts that exact same dream he actually fills in a few details he talks about like you know on those ugly cows They ate the beautiful cows that he really liked, that nothing changed in the ugly cow's appearance. You know, eating those cows didn't make them healthier or better. Okay, so he recounts this whole experience, and I'll jump all the way to verse 25 there. He says in 24, you know, I told the magicians, and there was no one who could explain it to me. So verse 25, now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. It's just like, remember, when he had those dreams, those two different dreams, and he told his father and his brothers about that. But the two dreams had the exact same meaning. Same here. He says, God, verse 25, Elohim has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. I want to just make, uh, bring one thing to your attention. God is in control of the nations. You don't have to be pulling out your hair or stressing out every time you hear the nightly news. By the way, it's generally the same story, just the names change. You don't have to be totally overwhelmingly consumed about all the problems that are out there because, you know, it says like in Proverbs that the king is like, like water in the hand of the king. You know, he, turned, he just, hand of the Lord. The, the Lord can just turn that hand wherever he wishes. God is fully in charge. And he makes that very clear to, to Pharaoh right now. He says, God has told Pharaoh what he's about to do. Verse 26, those, uh, those seven good cows... You know what those are? Those are seven years. And the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as if I've spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. God has shown it. And verse 29, he says, Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt. And after them, seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land, because all that subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now, as for repeating the matter, verse 32, he's repeated this dream to Pharaoh twice. You know what that means? that the matter is determined by God, this is going to happen, and God will quickly bring it about. Now, Joseph not only tells Pharaoh about his dreams and what they mean, but here's something really interesting. You would think he'd just like, you know what, I I think this will get me out of jail. All right, I think I've done it. But no, he not only tells what the dreams mean, he tells Pharaoh, let me tell you how you should respond to this. He actually he actually gives him advice and he calls for action. And so he says, verse 33, now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt and let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of, in Egypt in the seven years of abundance and then let them gather all the food in, in, of those good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it and let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which will occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land will not perish during the famine. So what he's doing is he's saying, hey, Pharaoh, this is what you need to do. You need to, in these seven good years, take a fifth of it. Now, you might say, well, that seems like an awful lot. There's going to be seven years of famine. You're going to take a fifth of it. Why would you take 20%? Well, you got to allow for spoilage. You need extra grain for trade, because if there's seven years of famine, Grain is going to be a very hot commodity coming up. And the other thing is, once the famine's over, you've got to have grain to plant again. And so he says, take 20%, a fifth. And he gives him this and tells him exactly what he should do. Uh, you know, as a, as a leader, I'm sure Pharaoh's going, whoa, this guy not only understands dreams, God seems to give him an understanding, but he knows how to handle huge difficulties. And so... Verse 37, now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. This seemed really good. And I would imagine this time Joseph is thinking, whoa, I am finally going to be free and emancipated. But then, verse 38, then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? Where are we going to find a guy like this? I'm sure Joseph never saw this coming. Verse 39, verse 39. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God, Elohim, has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. According to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. I'm going to set you up. You're going to be the number two man in Egypt and he acts on it immediately and so he said I've set you over the land of Egypt verse 42 then, then Pharaoh can you imagine the scene verse 42 he takes off the signet ring this ring would have been the ring that would have the markings these hieroglyphics uh, that would mark that it was the signature of Pharaoh he would use it and press it on wax and it would make documents official it would establish laws he takes his ring of power the power of the kingdom, and he gives it to Joseph. He takes it off of his hand, and he puts it on Joseph's hand. And then he clothed him in garments of fine linen. He takes off whatever bedsheet he's wearing, and he puts on robes of royalty. I mean, mind you, about an hour ago, a half hour ago, this guy was wasting away in prison He's now clothed with the robes of royalty. And then notice this in verse 42. He put the gold necklace around his neck. Okay, this was a, one of the highest distinctions the king could ever bestow. It was a symbol of investiture where he was taking this beautiful gold necklace and he puts it on Joseph. He is marking him out as the man. He is just under Pharaoh. And then verse 43 he gets himself a company car. Look at this. He had him ride in his second chariot. Whoa. All right. He saved the Lexus for himself, but he's got a decent ride right now. And, he, and they proclaim before him, bow the knee. This isn't a bow the knee as in worship. It's bow the knee in respect. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though I am Pharaoh, And yet, without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Whoa. I mean, no one could imagine what is taking place here. I've been thinking about this. I mean, talk about going from ashes to the top instantly. Now, if I was the cupbearer, I would start getting really nervous at this time. Because, mind you, he let him rot away in prison for two years. You're like, Ugh, this was not turning out the way I thought of. You know, I was trying to help Pharaoh out, and now the guy that I forgot about, he is now in charge. What is he going to do with me, right? And, and one other person probably um, starting to stress out big time is probably Mrs. Potiphar as soon as she hears about this, because she falsely accused him, and now. He can do whatever he wants. He basically has unstoppable power. Well, Pharaohs he keeps going. He has turned him into royalty. And verse 45, Then Pharaoh named Joseph. He changes his name to Zaphnath paneah which means God speaks and lives. He gives him a name that wherever he will go, Zaphnath paneah God speaks and lives. And he lives, and he does so in this man, formerly known as Joseph. And furthermore, he gives him a wife of nobility. Look at verse 45. And he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, probably no relation to Potiphar, maybe just a common name there. But the Potiphar, priest of On as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. He is the man. He is in charge, and he has risen to great prominence. And now I want you to see this. Verse 46. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh. He was 17, remember, when he was sold into slavery by his brothers. He's 30 years old, standing before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. And during the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. And so verse 48, just like he said, hey, what you need to do is you need to save 20%. So they do. Verse 48. So he gathered all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and placed the food in the cities. And he placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. So every city became this great place of storing grain. And verse 49. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea. Until he stopped measuring, for it was beyond measure. One of the things we've learned about the Egyptians is they take just amazing records. And they are counting and trying to keep track of all this grain. They're probably not counting each little kernel, okay? But they are trying to keep track of it. The amount of grain that is stored is so abundant, they can't even keep track of it. And not only is the land fruitful, Joseph has a fruitful marriage. Look at verse 50. Now, before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphara, a priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh. It means to forget, making me forget. For he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. God has done it. You see, nothing's changed about Joseph. He still walks with God and he says, God now has made me forget all the terrible problems and evil. That was bestowed upon me by my family. And verse 52, he named the second son, son, Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So Ephraim means fruitful and he sees the prosperity and it's not him. It's God. And so he names him Ephraim. God has made me fruitful. And if you are, you're looking, you're expecting and you're looking for some names for some boys. Forgetful and fruitful are two good choices, okay? And so he has two boys. Forgetful, and that's probably could be translated like that. Forgetful, get over here. Did you pick up your toys? I forgot. Imagine that. You know what I'm saying? So he's got two boys on top of this. He's running the empire. He's got the company car. He's dressed out in the finest duds. He's got a beautiful wife. He's living in a grand house. He has got it all, right? And he's got two boys, fruitful and forgetful, right there. Well, this verse 53 Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. And when the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there were famines in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And look what Pharaoh says. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do when the famine was spread over all the face of the earth. Then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt and the people of all the earth. Did you see this? The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. You know. You might be looking at this and going, whoa, wow, look what Pharaoh did to Joseph. You know, made him kind of like second in command, gave him all this nice stuff, gave him all sorts of power. But that would be to not see things correctly. This is not a story about Pharaoh and what a cool guy he is. This is the true story about God and how powerful he is. That he can work such a situation that a man who was a prisoner in a half hour can be a king. And not just a king, but one in such that the whole world now comes. And Pharaoh himself says, don't ask me about this. You go talk to Joseph and you do whatever he says. You remember remember Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham? Remember God told him, i make you a promise. I'll give you a land, a nation, and a blessing. And he says, in you in, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Remember when he said that? Well, that's starting to happen because now the whole world's coming to one of his great grandchildren, Joseph, and he is blessing them because he's providing them. He is bringing about a physical salvation. You know, from Abraham, there is another from that line. The Messiah, his name, Jesus, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the bread of life and all who hunger. If you really want life, you will find it in him because the full fulfillment of the promise that all the world will be blessed through you comes through the one of Jesus Christ. And so we find here this amazing chapter, chapter 41, that tells us about the power of God. But there's, there's two significant truths I want you to have fully embedded in your heart and your mind. There's something very important that we're to learn here. That God uses these There's significant difficulties in our life to mature his people. And there's two reasons why he does that. And I, I want you to have this crystal clear in your head and your heart. Because this will help you and myself When we go through these periods of prolonged difficulty where life doesn't make sense. Why does God allow these major difficulties in our life like he allowed in in Joseph's life? One, to build confidence in God. Building confidence in God. You see, the people of Israel would keep coming back to this chapter. When they thought there is no hope for us, they would remember that God is the one who can take you from prison, from being a slave, to experience kingship, freedom, redemption. And that is the same. that message is true today. God wants us to have confidence in Him. As Americans, we try to find our confidence in how much money we got in the bank, what kind of job we have, what are people thinking or saying about us. Those things can become idols. God wants us to have full confidence in Him. And how in the world does He bring that about? where people are so confident in the power of God. He does it through difficulties. You see, one of the great blessings of reading the Bible is that it reminds us time and time again of the power and the presence of God. And God actually gives us His Spirit that instills in us a desire to trust Him with all of our heart, to not lean on our own understanding, to truly have confidence in God. And look at back in your life cannot you see times where it was the invisible hand of God working in ways that at the time you just couldn't see that brought about this present good? That is what this chapter reminds us of. You see, we can look back and see that in every season of life, God teaches us lessons that are necessary for the season to come. And what confidence in God does is it allows us to bear fruit in whatever soil you might find yourself in. I mean, think of some of the hardship and the difficult soil in which Joseph was planted. Being a slave. I don't care what you think about your job, you are not a slave. Right? You can tell your boss that I said that, okay? But you're, you're not a slave. And you're not in prison unjustly. And yet, Joseph, no bitterness. He bears great fruit. How is that possible that we're not just enveloped by bitterness and allows it to overwhelm us? You know how it is? Back to chapter 39. The Lord was with him. The Lord is with you. He never leaves you. In fact, that is why God has sent Emmanuel, God with us, to this earth, so that you and I can live in a relationship with Jesus Christ. He pays the penalty for our sin, which separates us from God, And he unites us with himself, and he leaves us with this promise, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. I have given my spirit, and he is in your life, and I am with you. And you can be faithful, even if you think, like, this is just a meaningless job, and I don't see how me trying to deal with all my kids and their diapers and all this stuff has any meaning whatsoever. Just be faithful where God has planted you. You know, lengthy afflictions do not need to discourage us. In all our readings of Joseph, we never find that he was just spiraling downward and he just gave up. The reason why is that God was with him and he trusted and focused on God. And you need to probably know this, that God generally transplants people at different times. And what we're to learn is that we need to learn how to be faithful and fruitful where we are now so that we will be faithful and fruitful where God may take us. But right now, you are living an extremely significant season in your life. Will you be faithful, or are you just going to lay down and just uh, giving up here? No. Like Joseph, trusting in God, he is faithful. And by the way, don't let a difficult past produce a bitter present. Don't let bad memories defeat you. Everyone has difficult, hard times. I would imagine we could write a rather interesting book of all the things that people have done to us that have been bad, names they've called us, hate mail we've received. We could just write, we could read something like, whoa! Don't let the bitterness of the past spoil the joy of the future. And so we find here that Joseph, he seems to walk with God. You know what, you and I, you know what? We're going to choose who or what is going to hold us hostage. But nothing needs to if our focus is upon God. And so we see that's how Joseph is functioning. You know what allows him to do so well even in such difficulty? You see, he learned in the school of suffering the power of God's presence. Your suffering, your lack of finances, your broken relationship, your life and its hurt. God is teaching you Depend upon me. I am stripping away all earthly support so that you might find me to be your all sufficiency. And God, who can rescue Joseph out of prison, he is building confidence so that you and I will see that he can rescue sinners from hell and give them his presence, his eternity, and his joy. God is able. You might write that as one of the themes of the Bible. He is able. He is able to save forever those who draw near to him. God has given Christ to free you from sin so that you can experience his life and his presence forever. That is why the call is to turn from your sin and to trust Christ as the one who's paid for your sin and is truly the present one. You know, the, the idea of confidence with God is, is something that struck me so seriously That for years now, my own little personal mission statement, I have confidence in God. My, My personal mission statement is to walk joyfully and confidently with God and to love and lead others in the life we have in Christ. To walk joyfully and confidently in God. God wants my confidence in Him, not in my abilities, not in anything, not in our staff, but in Him. And there's another reason why God uses difficulties to bring maturity in our people. First of all, he, he builds confidence in God. But second, you know why he uses, what he uses difficulties for? For developing leaders for his people. The building of significant spiritual leaders is generally preceded by seasons of great difficulty. I mean, you can trace this pattern. Certainly you can see it in the life of Joseph as we've been making our way. But think of like Moses' life. For 40 years, having for the first 40 years basically known all the riches, the wealth, and the power of Egypt, for the next 40 years, he spends it herding sheep in the middle of nowhere, literally. I mean, there's not even grass there. What a difficult job. And you got sheep going everywhere. And he, for 40 years, he is just like the non-existent man. But you know what? He is learning critical and important lessons because, you know, after that 40 years is up, God's going to take those little meandering sheep that seem to go everywhere and he's gonna replace them with a mass of people. Only they have mouths that grumble. Okay? When they're not happy, they don't just go, meh, they just go, Wah, take us back to Egypt. You know what I mean? They're spewing out all their unhappiness all over you. Where does Moses learn all his leadership lessons? He does it in the seasons of difficulty. You want another guy? How about Joshua? You know, Joshua said, God told us the promised land, it's right there. It's it's better than it and build, man. It's awesome. No, we're not going in there. Nope, 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 nope. And he has to watch all of his fellow Israelites die for 40 years. At the same time, he serves Moses. And yet, through this whole season of difficulty, God has prepared him because guess who brings him into the promised land and takes on the Canaanites, whom God is bringing upon his judgment? It's Joshua. Joshua is God's key man. How did he develop those skills? He did it through the furnace of difficulty. You want another guy? How about David? David, very interesting guy, guy who walks with God, serves King Saul, serves him greatly, takes on guys like Goliath, and yet King Saul chases him around like a wild animal. All the while, what's happening in David's life is that the Saul-like tendencies in his life are being killed off. And David learns the critical lessons of leadership of a people by being persecuted by Saul. You see, our present problems prepare us for future usefulness. And it's kind of like this, guys and gals. If God is going to use you greatly, he has to break you significantly. That's, there's just no other way around it. And that's how it was for Joseph. Think of it. At age 30, you think he's ready for the top command right underneath Pharaoh in the empire of Egypt? Think about it. 30 year old, mm, Not unless you've had some pretty serious schooling, which he's had. As a slave who oversaw everything that Potiphar had, as a man in prison who could be entrusted with all the prisoners, he learned the lessons of leadership in the seasons of difficulty. And there is a period of waiting in which God creates great opportunities, and for some of you right now, you are in that period. I would just beg you, be faithful. Trust God. God provides, but he is doing a serious work in this time of difficulty. And so our question is, what happens to a guy like Joseph? What happens, though, once you've come through all these difficult experiences where you get money and you get married and you get a nice house and a nice car and you've got a a decent-sized account and you can buy anything you want and you've got a lot of stock in the food industry? What happens to you? Do you, like, all of a sudden just kind of walk away and, like, become a different person? You do, and many do, unless your focus is is on God. I'll I tell you this. There's a lot of folks that when you're young, you're praying, God, help me. And Lord, help me to be successful in these things. And then God actually allows you to be successful. And then you know what? There's like a turning. You actually think it's all about you. People are slapping you on the back. Way to go. You're awesome, man. You got it. Like, yeah, you think so? Oh, yeah, that's right. It's all about me, right? And you get little status symbols and you make your name known and not God's. And you seemingly seem to walk away from Him that's not Joseph. He's the same man as a slave, the same man in prison, and he's the same man on the top of the empire. He's God's man. And that's how he responds. You need to know this. Great blessings need not disqualify us from service. Sometimes people think that, well, you know, if, if someone has got a lot of money, and they've been successful in their careers, then you know what that means? That means they're going to They're they're doing things illegally or they're kind of not really focused on God. They're all focused about money. It's not necessarily true. If you think that way, you need to know you're wrong because God does raise up people like Joseph and he raises them up because they're his man in prison and in the difficulty. And they are his man when they are on the top and praise God for people like Joseph who actually realize what it means to walk with God and who are just as concerning and gracious to the poor when they are poor as they are when they are rich and wealthy and have means to do some significant work for God's kingdom. Great blessings do not disqualify you from God's great service. And so what is the lesson for all of us? It's this. Knowing God's good providence allows us to live and to lead with confidence. That's what God wants from us. That's what he's seeking to do through the person of Christ. He has given us the Lord so that through him we will live well. And if you're in positions of leadership, you will lead well because your confidence is in God. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this tremendous chapter in the book of Genesis. A book that is meant to be foundational for all of our life. And Father, we see what amazing power you have. You can turn the heart of a king. You can turn circumstances from terrible to absolutely beyond comprehension. For you are the God who is able. And Father, for someone who has come here today, who has never put their faith and trust in you, but today they really see your power. They have sensed your presence. They have heard from your word. Would they pray with me and say, Lord, I... I turn from my self-centeredness and even in my situation of brokenness. I trust your son, Jesus, who is truly able to save me from my sins and to fill my life with his presence. Lord, I am yours. Do with me as you will and accomplish your purposes in my life. And Lord, for all of us, would that be our prayer? That our confidence would not be in things that have happened or abilities you have given us, Our confidence is in you. And let it be known, Lord, that you are great among us. You are the famous one and you are worthy of all of our praise. And we give you all the glory right now and in the weeks to come. In Jesus' name.